and I'll put it up on the screen as well. And here's what it says in chapter 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, which is now like in southern Lebanon. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach. Just a little side note. There's different words for beach in Greek. There's for rocky shores and for real sandy shore. This is for a real sandy shore. And, and they actually have found in some archaeological digs descriptions of these large mounds the Romans had put on the beach in this city. And, it, and what it ended up happening is it created this huge slope of sand. And um, it was known. They started making glass in this city because of the sand that was there. And scholars just note that even something like Luke uses the word sandy beach instead of a rocky beach and how that fits historically. There's hundreds of these little connections with history. Sorry, moving on. I'm kind of a nerd about these things. We prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Remember Acts chapter 8, Philip brought the gospel to Samaria, planted a church in Samaria. He was one of the seven guys with Stephen that was chosen to help lead the ministry to the poor. And so he was, he was very much there when Paul was overseeing the stoning of Stephen, who was probably his close friend at that point. Because when he says we, Paul's with that group. Isn't that interesting? Remember that? And, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied, four virgin daughters, unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own hands, his own feet and hands, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. Now, the prophecy implies Paul being in Jerusalem for this prophecy to come to pass. You understand that? Okay. Who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus. An early disciple, that phrase early is actually a disciple from the beginning with whom we should lodge. You might say, well, why mention his name and why mention that he was from the beginning? Remember, that is 
one of the, that is Luke's way of saying, I have a very early source for my historical account. I've got a disciple here that was from the beginning, and he just happens to throw that in, constantly telling us where his sources are, like a reporter getting sources for a story, with whom we should lodge. Then we had come to Jerusalem, and the brothers received us gladly. So I think if you've read this story before, what did you notice? We just read the first 17 verses. What are some of the things you guys noticed in what we just read? What jumped out at you? Anybody want to share? Yeah, Joe. <laughs> Those New Testament prophets were just not very positive, were they? <laughs> what else did you notice? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, God made sure to let him know beforehand a lot. What else? Anyone else? Yeah, Peter. But after. Yeah. And then you get to like a documents like what's called the Didache, which is after the New Testament books but still first century document, it has pages and pages and pages of how to interact with prophets, test prophecy, what are false prophets, what are true prophets. Yeah. What else did you guys, anything else you notice about this passage? Anything else jump out at you? Yeah. Or Dave. Yeah. Yeah. They are virgin, and that was also a way of highlighting how young they were. Because remember, in Acts 2, Peter's first sermon, I'm going to pour out my spirit, your sons and daughters will prophesy, old men, young men. And so it was a way of saying that they weren't married yet, also a way of saying these are young girls. And it, and it was almost showing how the, Joel's prophecy is just being fulfilled. Anyone else? Peter, did you have something? Or not? Or Peter, you should, did you have something? Yeah, he's more interested in God's will than his safety. The book of Acts is not safety first. <laughs> it's like safety fourth or something. So we're going to look at a few things here. This verse has caused, I have heard so many sermons from so many different directions on this verse. I've heard sermons, I remember a Calvary Chapel sermon on K-Wave one time just talking about how Paul was so disobedient and going to Jerusalem, because obviously the Lord told him not to go. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, he spent a week in the city of Tyre, and then he says the disciples, through the Spirit, said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, and Paul was headed to Jerusalem. This is a difficult passage. It appears that the Holy Spirit is leading these disciples to urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. But then the problem is, is it seems like 21.4 contradicts a bunch of 
other verses where it seems like the Spirit is actually leading, directing Paul to go to Jerusalem and then go to Rome. Acts 19.21. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit. And that is, doesn't mean his personal spirit. That is referencing the Holy Spirit in context. To pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. Acts 20, 23. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, compelled or bound by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprison and afflictions await me. Paul says, the reason I'm going to Jerusalem is because the Spirit is compelling me. Acts 21, 11 and 13, we read this. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, why would the Holy Spirit give a prediction if he had just told Paul that this will happen in Jerusalem if he just told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem? When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they said, okay, the Lord's will be done. Acts 23, 11. Paul is in Jerusalem, already being imprisoned and persecuted. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me, where? In Jerusalem, you must also testify in Rome. Well, that doesn't sound like God saying, Paul, I told you not to go here. So, with all these verses, we've got Acts 21.4. And people that don't like the Bible say just another contradiction in Scripture. People that like the Bible say, well, Paul's being disobedient. Or, what are the other, how do we harmonize these verses. So let's look at it for a moment. I'm sorry for what I'm about to do. Greek prepositions have a wide range of meanings, way more than English prepositions. And there's this little preposition through. In Greek, dia, through the Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, sometimes this little preposition is used in a causal sense. Somebody through this, they're causing it to happen. But sometimes what's called an occasional sense. On this occasion, something happens. And the preposition can be used both ways. In other words, the Spirit is not causing them to say this to Paul, but on the occasion of the Spirit speaking to them, they are saying this to Paul. Does that, you guys understand, does that make a difference? There's a lot of examples of this use of this little preposition dia where it's used on through this happening, on this occasion something happens, as opposed to through this happening something is being caused to happen. Romans 12, 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Paul's not saying that God's grace given to Paul is not causing Paul to say this to them, what Paul is saying, on the occasion of God giving me this grace to be an apostle, 
I'm going to say this to the Christians. It's a difference, but it's a slight difference. So what is Acts 21.4 saying? And this is what a lot of New Testament scholars say. It's almost the exact same thing as Acts 21.11-13 with Agabus. It's just condensed. Through prophecy, the Spirit is... Because Paul said the Spirit... Everywhere I go, the Spirit says the same thing, is what Paul said. The Spirit is saying that Paul's going to go to Jerusalem and be persecuted and imprisoned. But as a result of hearing that prophecy, these believers in Tyre are urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So, here's my point. Prophecy has three parts to it. It has revelation, what is God saying? It has interpretation. How do we understand what God is saying? And it has application. How do we respond to what God is saying? Right? The revelation is up to God, but sometimes that interpretation and application is up to us. And what we have with this prophecy in Acts 21.4 and Acts 21.11.13, the revelation is right. Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound, imprisoned, and so forth. The interpretation and the application of that word is wrong. They considered the Spirit's warning to Paul about affliction and imprisonment. They considered that, interpreted that as a message not to go to Jerusalem, as a message to avoid persecution. But that was incorrect interpretation and application. Was the Spirit, the Spirit was telling Paul that when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be persecuted and imprisoned. Why say that beforehand? Well, number one, God, Paul, what is God telling Paul? When they throw you in prison, I want you to know something. They're not in control. I'm still in control. Even though it feels like they might be in control. And prophecy is a way of letting Paul know. I'm telling you beforehand so that when it happens, it, you're not outside of my will, Paul. You're not outside of my control. Paul says in Philippians, a bunch of the Christians were embarrassed because of his chains. Well, if Paul really followed God, he wouldn't be sitting in a Roman dungeon. Right? He would have favor. He would have influence. He would have a stage. He would have money. He would have this, right? <laughs> the other thing is what was God letting Paul know? That I have not abandoned you. When you're sitting in prison, cold, hungry, beaten, can it feel like, God, where are you? So by, by lots of prophecies beforehand, God is letting Paul know, I've been leading you the whole time, and even when you suffer, I'm still leading you. You see how... So the actual prophecy was not to discourage Paul in his mission to Jerusalem. It was to encourage Paul in his mission to Jerusalem. Does that make sense? 
Now, here's where we need to learn then. And what's interesting is when, you, when Paul talks about prophecy, like in the book of Thessalonians, Paul says, hey, I want you guys to test prophecy. And part of that is not just, is it from God or not, but is our interpretation and our application. Test it. Make sure it's right. Does that make sense? And you'll find this everywhere in the Bible, by the way. All of these prophets in 2 Kings hear the same prophetic word. Our master is going to be taken away. Our master Elijah is going to be taken away. God's going to take him away. And so what did they say? We're going to search everywhere and look for his body. Well, there, it was a correct word. God is going to take Elijah away. But it was an incorrect interpretation and application. He wasn't just going to relocate Elijah somewhere else. He was literally going to take him away to heaven. And so they're searching around all over the area because they're misinterpreting and applying a correct word. Does that make sense? I could share so many examples. So for us as a church, one is we want to accept prophecy. We're not cessationists like what Peter said. When after God wrote a book, he didn't stop talking. Now, prophecy is not where we get doctrine from. The scripture is our foundation, right? What we believe is from scripture. What the Holy Spirit is doing is he reminds us, emphasizes things, directs us, right? Prophecy is not inerrant. It is not equal to Scripture. The New Testament itself says, it doesn't say you need to test Scripture. It never says that. It says, you, what do you do with Scripture? You read it and believe it. Prophecy, you got to test it. Right? We want to learn to rightly interpret prophetic messages. We want to learn to correctly apply them. So how is prophecy going to come to us as a church? How does God speak through us? Let's look at what, a couple of other verses here. Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. That's way back in Acts chapter 8 and 9. And stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. So Philip is called what? An evangelist. What does an evangelist do? Somebody tell me. He's, the purpose, they share the good news, the gospel with unbelievers, with the world, with the lost. That is the goal of an evangelist, right? They're always thinking not about the church, but about the world and the lost. That was Philip. But what's highlighted about Philip? Not his evangelism in Caesarea, but his what? His daughters. What is highlighted about Philip is that his daughters prophesied. His daughters knew the Lord. His daughters heard the Lord's voice and shared the Lord's messages with others. And his daughters were young. They got married young in the ancient Middle East. They weren't waiting until they were 30. So by being unmarried, they were teenagers. 
or junior hires, right? That's what's emphasized. What is Luke highlighting? Not Philip the evangelist, but Philip the parent, right? Philip the parent. And what it's interesting, right in the middle of this passage, what we find here, the one of the greatest evangelists in the book of Acts, and we don't even hear about his evangelism. We hear about how he raised his four girls. A major, major emphasis in the Bible is not what we do just in the church or in the world, but with our families, how we raise our kids. And even adults that are single, there are still young people in their lives, right? That they influence. Philip raised his daughters to hear the Lord's voice and prophesy. There are so many verses about this. Just one example, Ephesians 6.4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You see, a major thing about prophecy is not just us doing it, but us raising up our kids to do it or young people that are in our lives to do it. And what's interesting about Philip's daughters By saying unmarried, they are young. So we've got females prophesying and young people prophesying. By the way, prophecy is the highest form of communication you can do. So if a woman can prophesy, hello? But we also know that they became major leaders in the early church. There are many mentions of Philip's daughters from the early church fathers. Papias lived from 60 to 130 AD. Papias was in direct contact with the Apostle John and other church leaders from that first generation. And there's fragments of what he wrote that we have record of. One of the early church historians that collected these writings was a guy named Eusebius. And he mentions the writings of Papias in his, in, in his book called Ecclesiastical History. And listen to what he says. Now it has already been pointed out above that Philip the Apostle lived at Heropolis with his daughters. But it also now must be noted that Papias, who was a contemporary of theirs, revealed that he received a marvelous story from the daughters of Philip Papias actually had first-hand communication with these daughters. For he relates that a resurrection of the corpse took place in this time. Apparently, Philip's daughters raised the dead. And again, that another miracle took place in connection with Justice, surnamed Barsabbas, who drank a deadly poison and through the grace of the Lord suffered no harm. Mitliotis, from the 2nd century, was a Christian writer that argued against this heretical group, heresy is false teaching, called the Montanists. 
And he wrote how they were not part of the true church. They had some strange teachings and strange practices. And one of the things he writes is that they're not, one of the reasons they're not part of the true church any longer is they no longer have prophecy functioning. Because the true church, based off of Joel and Peter, will have prophecy up until the Lord's return. And he says that the Montanist prophets were false prophets, not the real deal, and it's one of the marks that they're not part of the true church. Listen to what he says, though. And Eusebius records his writings, records it. Going on in the same work, he makes a list of those who have prophesied in the New Testament. And among these, he numbers a certain Amia, who's a lady, and Kudratus, who's a man, speaking thus. But the false prophet speaks in ecstasy, which is accompanied by ease and freedom from fear, beginning with voluntary ignorance, but turning into involuntary madness of soul, as has already been said. The prophets that were the Montanists would go, they would, they would act like a spirit would take them over and they would go and, and they would, like, it would control them. I would, Tibetan Buddhists, when they prophesied, the bodies would get stiff, somebody would, their voices would change, they would fall on the ground, they would lose control, and some other voice would speak through them. It was demonic. Christian prophets are not like that. Paul says in Corinthians, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. A prophet can actually stop prophesying to give room for somebody else to speak. It wasn't take, when God, when the spirit moves, you don't lose your free will. You don't go out of your mind. You find that with shamans of other religions. You find that with priests of like Hindu priests. They lose control. The spirit takes over. Does that make sense? And that's his argument. His argument is, our guys don't do that. And here's what he says. But they will not be able to show that any prophet of those in the Old Testament or these in the New was inspired in this manner. They will boast neither of Agabus, nor of Judas, nor of Silas, all prophets mentioned in the book of Acts, nor of the daughters of Philip nor of Amia in Philadelphia, nor of Quadratus, nor of any others who do not belong to them, this heretical group. So, he mentions Agabus, Judas, Silas, and then he mentions the daughters of Philip. And then Amia in Philadelphia, in the second century, she was a prophetess that was really prominent. And then Quadratus, who was a prophet and an apologist, a Christian philosopher who wrote a defense of the faith to the Roman Emperor Hadrian in Athens in about 124-125 AD. The charismatic prophet doesn't need to be completely ignorant of theology and the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? In the same way that the teacher and the theologian doesn't need to be completely disconnected from prophecy and dreams and visions and all that. You see that? 
Clement of Alexandria, he lived from 150 to 215 AD. He was responding to the false teachings that were rejecting marriage for church leaders. Saying, if you, you must be celibate, you cannot be married. And, it was, and, and Paul actually mentions them in the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, where these false teachers were forbidding marriage. And what does he do? He talks about early church leaders that were married, including Peter. Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. Well, you only have a mother-in-law if you have a wife. Philip, and even Philip's daughters, because he happens to mention that later on, some of Philip's daughters got married. What does that imply? They became mothers and they became wives and probably mothers, not just prophetesses. It says in his writing called the Stromata, or do they also scorn the apostles? Peter and Philip had children and Philip gave his daughters in marriage. Gaius, who was in the third century, a Christian writer, also wrote a, 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 writing, a, a dialogue against this heresy called Montanism. There was a leader, a heretical leader called Proclus, and he wrote against him. And in that writing, he mentions that Philip and Philip's daughters died in Heropolis in Asia, which is in southwest Turkey. And he says the location of the graves of Philip's daughters. He says, we know where they are. So what does that mean? It implies that Philip's daughters ran the race till they died. They didn't veer off. They stayed with it. Your grave only becomes known and visited, right? If you ran the course until you died. Here's what he writes. And in the, in the dialogue of Gaius, which we mentioned a little before, Proclus, against whom he composed the disputation, thus speaks about the death of Philip and his daughters, agreeing with what was already set forth. And he quotes, After him the four daughters of Philip, prophetesses, were at Heropolis in Asia. Their grave is there, and likewise that of their father. I'm almost more concerned that we raise up our kids to prophesy. Your kids might be older or younger, or maybe not biological children, but other people the Lord has brought into your life. By the way, when God told Sam, Samson's parents, your son is going to be a Nazarite, they said, well, how do we do that? And the angel said, you yourself live as a Nazarite. Does that make sense? I remember when Brooke and I came back from Tibet in 2001, China wouldn't renew our visas. We essentially got kicked out of the nation, as well as many other missionaries at the time. And I told the Lord back in California, please, God, don't let me go from being a missionary to an office worker. Please, God. I mean, I'd just been backpacking to Buddhist monasteries, taking the scriptures, preaching the gospel, praying for people in the Himalayan mountains. And I said, please don't let me go into a cubicle. 
please, God, don't let me go from missionary to office worker. Please give me an open door for full-time ministry. And I tried to open a bunch of doors on my own. And all I hit were closed doors. Finally, Brooke is working for an administrative assistant for a temporary power company, Power Plus, and I can't find a job. My resume doesn't look great because I've just been in China for so long and missionary and Bible college degrees and just didn't look great. I couldn't get a job. Finally, I go to a temp agency and they place me with Canon printers in their public relations department. And I have a cubicle. And I got angry. And I said, well, God, if you don't care about me, I guess I just won't care about you. And I'm telling you, that year, I stopped praying. I stopped reading the Bible. I, I, I was afraid not to go to church, but I went to church and didn't care. My heart got really hard towards God. I just watched TV. I would just, you know, I just decided I wasn't going to really do anything. For almost a year, well, no, maybe uh, closer to half a year, actually, by the time this all started. And I recognize that my heart is not in a good place. I recognize I'm just angry at God. And one is I wanted to be a missionary, and I couldn't. Two is then I wanted to go on full-time ministry, and God said no. And now I'm working through a temp agency in a cubicle with Canon printers looking at Excel spreadsheets and designing graphics and stuff. It was the Sunday night before Christmas. We were at our Sunday night service at the Anaheim Vineyard. And, and, and the message moved me. And I thought, okay, I give up. I'm not going to be, I can't stay mad at God anymore. And there was an altar call and I went forward. And, when I, and I went forward, and I was near the front, and I saw Andy Comiskey, a man that was on staff at the time at the church, and I saw him on the other side, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, Andy's going to come pray for you. You need it. And so I just waited. And sure enough, after a while, Andy makes a beeline towards me and walks up to me and puts his hand on my shoulder, and he starts praying for me, and I start crying because I'm now repenting. I'm, I'm telling God I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I'm softening my heart, I'm, you know what I mean? I'm confessing all my resentment and bitterness to Andy, he's praying for me. And I'm like actually really crying, I'm like sobbing, right? Pent up anger at God, right? And then at the end of it, Andy says, I had a vision. He says, is Brooke pregnant? I said, no. I said, we've actually been making steps not to be pregnant. She's not pregnant. He goes, are you sure? I said, yes, I'm sure. We are taking steps not to have kids. She is not pregnant. And, and he said, well, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a, a spiritual meaning. I said, maybe God just is telling me, because I want to be in the ministry, he's going to birth a new ministry through us. And that's just a symbol right? And he said, yeah, probably. Two weeks later, I'm sitting on the freeway driving up the uh, 55 freeway. The sun is going down. It's twilight. I'm stuck in bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic um, coming up from the Canon office 
complex that's down there in Costa Mesa or Newport or wherever it was at the time. And Brooke calls me on my cell phone, and I answered, and she said, Sam. And, the mo and she said it and paused, and all of a sudden, for some reason, I knew what she was about to say. She says, I tested twice, and I am pregnant. And I went, I was just speechless. And all of a sudden, I was about to get super anxious, because I'm thinking I still work at a temp agency. You know what I mean? And our, and, and we just, our life was, was upended after Tibet. I was not ready to have kids. And, but then, in the next moment, I remembered the, Andy Kamisky's prophecy. And it was like the peace and presence of God just filled the car. And I had this overwhelming sense of this. Sam, you haven't left my path at all. You actually haven't drifted off out of my will at all. And I'm thinking missionary in Tibet. But what if she, she, was, she ended up giving birth to Kayla? What if me being a parent to Kayla in God's eyes was as important or even more so than being a missionary in Tibet? Do you hear what I'm saying? Philip the evangelist. Now let me tell you about his daughters. Do you understand what I'm saying? By the way, that was another example of a prophecy that I interpreted completely wrongly until after the fact. Right? Sometimes you got to be careful with these words. You never know. Oh, that one was literal. Then you find out after, oh, that one really was symbolic. You understand what I'm saying? We need, we want, we need, and, and most parents think they do a terrible job. Right? Most parents, but you have to understand that doesn't matter. Well, we want our kids, we want to raise them up not just to become doctors or engineers or code, people that code for Google or whatever. Raise up prophets and prophetesses. Ask God for that for our kids. Ask them. Right? One last thing. Acts 21, 10 to 14. While we were staying for many days, a prophet came, named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and delivers him into the hands of the Gentiles. And when he heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am not ready to only be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Many times prophecy will rub up against what we, our theology, right? It could be that they're thinking, we, we see Paul preaching. We see Paul ministering in the public square. We see Paul teaching in the synagogues. We see Paul going house to house. 
and how effective that is. So in their worldview of the way God works, why stick Paul in a dungeon? Why stick him in a prison? That would stop all of that. They had no idea Paul was going to write letters that we're using now from those prisons and dungeons. Do you understand what I'm saying? The prophecy didn't fit their view of the way God acts. But at least it says this, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, this is always a smart thing to do. Let the will of the Lord be done. Now, when Agabus prophesies Paul's future in Jerusalem, he doesn't just declare it. He takes Paul's belt. And what was that belt? It wasn't like a leather belt. It was a sash that in ancient Middle Eastern garments that men wore would go around the waist multiple times and they use it to store stuff like their money and tools and items, right? And the, so, so Agabus takes Paul's sash and he ties his hands and his feet with it and then he says, this is what's going to happen to you. This is how What's the this, the little drama he just did? Is how the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Agabus used a symbolic action. And a lot of scholars believe that he probably also used a symbolic action in Acts 11.28. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This ha took place in the days of Claudius. That Greek verb foretold doesn't necessarily mean foretold. The verb semino, it means to indicate or signify. It's from a noun, semeon, which is where the word sign is used all over the New Testament. The, the, the verb implies a sign or a symbol. And it's likely that what it's really saying is Agabus stood up and used symbolic action or, or showed a sign that the, uh, by the Spirit that there would be a great famine. Right? That's probably what it means. Another prophetic symbolic act. The scriptures are full of prophecies that are not just with words, but with symbolic actions. To prophesy the destruction of Jerusalem and Judea that was irreparable, Jeremiah, God says, Jeremiah, buy a pot, gather the elders together, smash the pot, and then tell them, to a point where you couldn't repair the pot afterwards and tell them that's what I'm going to do to Jerusalem. Then break the jar, Jeremiah 19, 10 to 11, then break the jar while those who go with you are watching and say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will smash this nation and this city just as this potter's jar is smashed and cannot be repaired. To prophesy the coming captivity of Israel, God told Jeremiah to make straps and crossbars and put them on his neck. Like what you would do to, to 
oxen or slaves. Jeremiah 27, 1-2. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. To prophesy the coming Babylonian siege of Jerusalem, Ezekiel was told to make a model of the city and erect a model siege against it. Ezekiel 4, 1-2, Now, son of man, take a block of clay, put it in front of you, and draw the city of Jerusalem on it. Then lay siege to it, erect siege works against it, build a ramp up to it, set up camps against it, and put battering rams around it. Like a little model. To prophesy what the Assyrians would do, because Israel kept saying, while the Assyrians are conquering the world, well, we'll make an alliance with Egypt, and then we'll be able to resist the Assyrians. What they're not saying is, we'll call out to God for help. And Isaiah says, okay, I'm going to prophesy to you what's going to happen to the Egyptians and the Cushites or the Ethiopians. Isaiah says, I'm going to prophesy that they are going to be stripped and barefooted like slaves, and that's what Assyria is going to do to them. How did he prophesy that? Listen to this one. Isaiah 22 to 4. God said to him, take off the sackcloth from your body and the sandals from your feet. And he did so, going around stripped and barefoot. Then the Lord said, just as my servant Isaiah has gone stripped and barefoot for three years as a sign and portent against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead away stripped and barefoot the Egyptian captives and Cushites exiles, young and old, with buttocks bared. To Egypt, Shane, he said, Isaiah, I want you to walk around with no sandals and a bare backside as a prophecy to let them know what's going to happen to the Egyptians because you keep saying, I'm going to trust the Egyptians. I don't need God. That was a prophetic, symbolic act. Why would God use prophetic acts? It's a way to emphasize, to visualize, right? To clarify, to highlight. It's important. People often remember what they see, not just what they hear, right? You can read words. You can read sentences on a book. But symbols and dramas and plays can impact in a way that words cannot. Right? Why am I saying this? It is foreign to most of the American church for people to do prophetic acts. I don't even think they would be led in the service. But if we're going to do the book of Acts and not do just modern American church, it could be that God would have some people do prophetic acts. And hopefully it's real prophecy. I have seen people, and it wasn't real. It was them wanting attention. We don't want that. We don't want something out of just somebody's own, what's the word? Their own volition, 
their own reasons, their own trying to get attention, so they do something strange. I want real prophecy, but real prophecy might not show up as words. Real prophecy might show up as a prophetic act. I remember when um, in 1999, Brooke and I are moving to Lhasa, Tibet for the first time. And there was a going away party for us at the Anaheim Vineyard. And a couple hundred people were there, actually, throughout the night. Just to pray for us, and we were being sent off as missionaries. And I remember at the end of that night, this was in that room that was like their wedding chapel room. Although there was no wedding chapel back then. Um, they gathered around us, a huge, put us in the middle of a, and, and around a circle, and they prayed for us. And while they're praying for us, uh, a man named, who's on staff at the Laguna Niguel Vineyard, a man named Kent Larson, he's a pastor there, he said, I have a prophecy, a vision, I want to share it with you. I can see you and your team on the Tibetan plateau, that Himalayan plateau, and I can see a ram's horn, a shofar being blown. And then a few minutes later, Bob Fulton says, I had a vision of a wall of fire going before you and your team in Tibet. Now, honestly, when they share those visions, I thought, oh, that's nice. I thought, I've actually heard so many people give prophecies about shofars and things like banners of fire. I just thought that's just what people share. I, I honestly didn't think it was a big deal. I thought, I didn't know what it meant, didn't really mean anything to me. I thought, oh, whatever, and kind of dismissed it in my mind, I, just being honest. And I forgot about it completely. So a long story, we arrive in Tibet, in Lhasa, with a team that's already been there. And the persecution was off the charts. The government had informants that were following and tracking our every move. We had, our team had started a Christian guest house and the business behind it wanted to take our building so they were spreading lies about our team and about our employees all over the city. The government had taken, we had a, a small church we planted and local believers were being interrogated. One lady they brought into a basement, took an electric cattle prod and started electrocuting her to tell her who the other Christians were. Remember, it's illegal to do Christian activity in Western China. They were, um, there was so much, and, and, and we were being, our team all throughout the city, by business people, by government officials, by other city, people in the city, were lying about us constantly. And our, our team leaders had a house in a Tibetan village, and the government was making efforts to kick them out of their house and make them homeless. Satan was doing everything he could do to dislodge us, to kick us out of this city, and to, and to snuff out this new church plant. So one night, we were in a prayer meeting, and we're at our team leader's house in this Tibetan village. We're on the second story. And we're, we're gathered in this living room, and we're worshiping and praying, and we're calling on God for help. If the Lord doesn't turn the tide, 
we're going to lose our foothold in the city. We're going to be gone. We're going to lose our business, this hotel. People are going to lose their homes. Our, our church is going to disband. And we're, we're literally, we're praying in tongues. We're praying in Chinese. We're praying in Tibetan. We're praying in English. And we're calling on God for help. And all of a sudden, my team leader and his wife leave the living room and go into their bedroom. Now, you have to understand, my wife and I never told them about the going away party at the Anaheim Vineyard. We just forgot about it. And then my team leader and his wife walk out of the bedroom back into the living room. And he is carrying a ram's horn, a shofar. And she is carrying a banner of woven fire. And he grabs the shofar and starts blowing the ram's horn. And she takes this banner of woven fire and starts swinging it like this. The moment he starts doing that, a puja, a Buddhist worship service, starts in that house that is adjacent to our house. And the moment our team leader starts blowing his ram's horn, the Buddhist monk in the next house over starts blowing his Buddhist horn. And there's got competing sounds. And they both are getting louder. And all of a sudden... This is real spiritual warfare through this prayer and symbolic acts and prophecy. And then I remembered the going away party and the two prophecies. And I stopped everything. I said, guys, guys, everybody stop for a minute, stop for a minute. And they all stopped and looked at me. And I said, we had a going away party at our church before Brooke and I left California. During the going away party, one pastor had a vision of us blowing a ram's horn, a shofar in Tibet, and one pastor had a vision of a wall of fire. And I said, and I am literally looking at Johannes, our team leader, blowing a shofar, and his wife Jan doing a banner of fire. I said, this was prophesied beforehand, literally. And we were all kind of stunned at the moment. And then we just erupted in prayer and worship, blowing that horn, declaring the victory of Jesus over Tibet. Over the next few weeks, the tide turned. The businessman that was trying to get us kicked out of our hotel apologized <laughs> and became an advocate. Government officials that were trying to kick us out got exposed for corruption from other government officials and stopped. Our team leader never ended up getting kicked out of his house at the time. Our church continued. The gossip, the lies, the interrogations, it was like it just stopped. God showed up. I, you, we can't underestimate the power of that moment. The, 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 the ram's horn and the banner were not just a charismatic worship service. It was literally a, prof a prophecy declaring what God was saying and doing. The, the, the power behind that, that's the word of God. That's not just us doing something. Does that make sense? And there are times when we're going to have to be ready for that. Ready for that.
Amen? So what I want us to do is we're going to just finish by taking a couple of minutes. So here's what we're going to do. Last thing. Acts 21, 11. Everybody say, thus says the Holy Spirit. One more time. We want that. And so what I want us to do for the next 14 days, two weeks, is listen. You might say, well, what do you mean by that, Sam? Take 10 minutes a day. I know two weeks ago I said pray in the Spirit or ask for the Spirit for 10 minutes. Take 10 minutes a day and you need to set your, you, may, maybe while you're in your car, in your backyard, in your bedroom, wherever. But for 10 minutes, be silent before God. Maybe to prepare for that, you got to do a couple worship songs beforehand. Maybe read a Bible chapter beforehand to just quiet your spirit. And be silent. Wait on God. To hear Him. Now you might say, well, Sam, what if he doesn't speak? It's up to you to listen. It's up to him to speak. I have had seasons of my life where I've listened, listened, listened. And he didn't speak to me while I was listening. He spoke to me while I was sleeping. And all of a sudden, I started getting dreams. But you, we have to quiet ourselves. Sin is bad. But you know what else is bad? Noise. Our culture with media, with phones, with TV, it's endless barrages of noise and worldly messages. And you just say no! And you get silent for 10 minutes. What if your mind wanders? That's okay. Sometimes I'll just quietly... Lord, I wait on you right now. Just, uh, Lord, you're holy, you're beautiful. A little phrase to help direct your heart and mind back to God. Or just sing quietly a little bit. But be quiet and listen. We want to take two weeks and listen. Lord, speak to me and speak to us. Intimacy. Sometimes God whispers, and the reason he whispers is he doesn't just want you to hear, he wants you to be close. So he'll whisper. If you get close enough to me, you'll find out what I'm saying. Stay that far away, you're just not going to hear it. Because God likes you, right? He actually wants you. And then what's gonna what I want to do the next two Sunday mornings is before we share with each other, before we look at the book of Acts, is just to come prepared, ready to share what God is saying to you. Now, sometimes you're going to get thoughts in that time, and it's not God. Your mind is processing a relationship with somebody, a frustration, something at work. And so it's learning to differentiate God's voice from your thoughts. How do you do that? 
There's no formula. How do you know what my voice sounds like? If I called you on the phone and you heard my voice, would you know it's me? Probably. Right? But how? I think that over time, yeah. That's it. You know it by relationship, not by some formula. I can't tell you what God's voice sounds like. Is that vision from God or your imagination? I can't tell you that. You're going to have to get that through relationship. Now, the Bible guides us in terms of how they heard from God. The Bible is a guide, but it's not a formula. It's a relationship. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, What then, brothers... Remember, it's the masculine inclusive. It doesn't mean only men, right? Brothers and sisters, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. That's prophecy. A tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So the next two weeks, when you come together, I'm gonna, we're going to see that someone have a revelation, a prophecy, an interpretation. Yeah. So, First Corinthians fourteen twenty six. It means that you have to let all things be done for building up. And I have heard teachings on prophetic words, and they basically said, you know, it should be more than one. Yet we look at different prophetic words that we're given in Acts, and it was like he's getting tied up, and you know, I mean, I guess, I guess you made the point that it was building Paul up. Yeah. Yes, we inter- we've been t- we- some people have interpreted what is edifying to equal what is positive. And that's, the, that's a wrong equation. What is edifying, it is what is going to build you up. When John prophesies to the seven churches in Revelation, he says, oh, I know that you're doing this, this, and this. That's wonderful. And here's the things I have against you. The whole prophecy was building up, right? And so we, we tend to think what is negative or positive, but sometimes what we would classify as negative, Paul, you are, the Holy Spirit says beforehand you're going to be imprisoned. But if you're in prison and you know that it was prophesied beforehand, you know how encouraging that is? I'm in the center of God's will. I didn't screw up. God didn't abandon me. Does that make sense? So, it's, the categories are not negative or positive. The categories are, is it authentic? Is it from God or not? And if it is from God, it's going to build you up. If it is from God, if it's an authentic prophecy, it is going to build you up. Even if it is God telling us what He has against us. Because he doesn't say that to leave you hopeless. He says that to say, hey, I'm now showing you the root of the problem so we can fix that. Does that make sense? Okay. So carve out 10 minutes a day and just listen. Good? Will you guys do that?
So what we're going to do now is just take a couple of minutes. So even for that short time, did anyone just all of a sudden, sometimes it's like your thoughts are going one direction, and if God speaks, it's like a car coming from another direction. But did anyone feel like maybe the Lord spoke to you or gave you either a picture or a vision, an impression, a word? Anyone feel like they heard from anything? What was it? Well, what I saw, I don't know if that's working. Um, no, that's working. Okay. Uh, what I saw was a dark place uh, in a living room next to a couch. And that dark spot seemed to be the dominant piece. The couch didn't have any cushions on it. It was bare. And I, I think what the Lord was interpreting to me was that many times we try and do this, where we try and focus in on the Lord, and we end up in this dark spot. Not evil, not you know, driven by the enemy, but it's just a dark spot. It's not a light spot. And that we need to continue to seek, to push, to rise up, be still being uncomfortable, not getting back on the couch, but in a place where we can hear what he's trying to tell us. Yeah. And like what you, and maybe the Lord just showed you, and what you saw was in, some, in a living room. And God's, I mean, God, it sounds like that was emphasized. It's in this living room that God wants us to, to hear. Did you have one too? Yeah. So when I um, was waiting for the Lord, I saw tumult of water crashing and just a, a mess on I, a big region. It's like a regional area, and I don't know how far out. But anyway, it's just the times, basically. But I heard the Lord say the tumult of, of the culture, the tumult of things that are unfolding before us now are confusing for the people. They are difficult for the people. They are distracting for the people. But you, you and you and all of us, we carry the truths of Jesus in us. And it is us. We are the ones that get the great privilege of saying to those in our lives, here, this is the way. Walk this way. Because we are the ones who see. We are the ones who have the unction. We are the ones who know the words. We are the ones. We are the ones who carry the very spirit of Jesus. That was good. So in a word like that, it's God is, if, if the waters are, if there's a lot of crazy and tumult, it talks about this in Isaiah, how the wicked are like that. We're not the ones who should be caught up in that. And it was real, that was good. Anyone else? Yeah. Actually, I wrote it down because I got it when we were all yelling out Jesus, and he gave me a vision, and I was going to give it to you after service. Is that working? He said, uh, first of all, I saw blackness, just like that curtain is, except it was a wall of entirely black. And when we were in the middle of calling out the name of Jesus, the shaft of like light tore open the blackness. And I heard the Lord speak, and he was looking at us. And he said, my precious, precious saints, upon you, my faithful foundation, will I bring revival in greater measure than before. I will pour out my spirit in great, 
greater measure than ever before. And I saw the dead raising. I saw people instantly getting healed. We, we thought we saw it all with John Wimber. We ain't seen nothing yet. What's coming? During worship, also, I, I, I don't get headaches. I usually don't. Um, I haven't had one in ages, but I'll, for just a moment, I had an extreme pain right here, and then it came and left. And sometimes that God will speak even in that way. Does any? Uh, it's almost like a word of knowledge about a physical issue. Has anybody had? It's like a pressure on your head or a headache right here. Has anybody experienced that? And you've had some real pain there? Can a couple of people just gather around Jerry and pray for him? Let's just do that real quick. A couple of people gather. And so what we want you to do, yeah, just a couple of people just gather and can pray for him. Um, anyone else got something just burning on your heart you'd like the Lord say before we finish this morning? So when uh, Sam just said to uh, wait for a few minutes in tears, um, he just said, Sam has spoken the truth today. Listen to what he said. Oh, thank you. So we're going to do that. So next week, throughout the week, if you really think, oh, my gosh, I got a genuine word from God, a dream or something, write it down and come next week prepared to share and we're going to see what confirms what. And if there's a, a line that the Lord is directing us in, we'll do that. And for the next two weeks, we're going to really want to give time for that. Amen? So, Lord, I pray this week, God, that the spirit of prophecy, the spirit who speaks, uh, who gives dreams at night, visions in the day, that I ask for the release of the gift of prophecy, and I ask that you would even connect us with prophets and prophetesses, God. And we just ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.